Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They do tend to be mainly art house and world cinema. That's what I really love. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and very personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect to it so deeply. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Roberto Rossellini's 1954 classic, Journey to Italy. This was a very influential film. In particular, it had a profound effect on French New Wave directors like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut, who loved it and championed it. It stars Ingrid Bergman and George Sanders as Catherine and Alex Joyce. They're a married couple on vacation in Italy. Alex has inherited his uncle's house, and they're in Naples to try and sell it. Over the course of their stay in Italy, their marriage starts to disintegrate. They become more distant with each other, and Catherine often wanders alone by herself, exploring museums and soaking in the ancient history of Italy. For me, this is a deeply haunting film. It's gnawed at me ever since I watched it a few years ago, and really this episode is my attempt to communicate the mysterious power it has over me and the beauty that I think it holds. I talk about death, mortality, time, history, and so much more. I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can access all kinds of rewards and extras like merchandise and bonus episodes. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode, so I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons Jenny, Eddie, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for your support and your generosity. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. If you write a full review. I'll read it in a future episode. You can tell your friends and followers about her head in films, or you can just engage with me in a really positive way on social media. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for her head in films. You can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode, so I won't go on any longer. I've been really excited to share this episode with you. It came out much better than I expected. I'm really glad that I was able to talk about Journey to Italy, but more than that, I'm really glad I was able to articulate how much I love it, why I love it, and why it has this power over me, and why I feel like this film is almost part of me at this point. It is a stunning film full of mystery, and it means a lot to me to be able to share this discussion with you and to share all of my thoughts and feelings about the film. So here is my episode about Journey to Italy. for films like Journey to Italy because these are the kinds of films that they're they're very mysterious and the mystery of them sort of envelops you 
and you want to talk about them with somebody for hours. <laughs> That's how I feel about this film. Of course, I don't have anybody to talk to about Journey to Italy for hours, so I will talk to you because this is my outlet to talk about the films that I watch and that I love. I have to say, ever since I saw this film a few years ago, it really has haunted me. It's one of those films that has gotten under my skin. Italian cinema tends to do this. In particular, Michelangelo Antonioni's 1960 film La Ventura. That is another film where the mystery really absorbed me. And I've seen it several times and it just never dissipates for me and it never loses its power. And I do think that Journey to Italy does something similar to me <laughs> in the way that I feel about it. And really, I don't think that we would have La Ventura without Journey to Italy, which was released in 1954. Because really, Journey to Italy changes so much. The Cahiers de Cinema, the, the writers at that time, like Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, Romare, all of them, André Bazin... Um, who's a really important film theorist and writer. All of them really championed Journey to Italy, even though it was pretty much a failure. A lot of the films that Rosalini did with Ingrid Bergman did not do that well, for various reasons, I'm sure, but I can understand why Journey to Italy was probably really challenging to audiences at that time. Like, this is a film that is, it meanders, right? And it's, there's not a lot of plot. At its core, though, I think that this is a film about a couple. It's part of this very long tradition of art about couples, about men and women, the relationships between men and women, and how they relate to each other or don't, how they communicate with each other or don't. And I think you can sort of situate the film in that sort of tradition as well as trying to figure out why men and women struggle so much to to connect, to communicate, all of those things. And it's also about a relationship that's coming apart. You don't necessarily have to be married to relate to it, perhaps. I actually, I don't know if I've done a film about a married couple. I'm not sure. I don't cover a lot of like films about married people because it's not part of my life or my reality. It's not something I think a lot about. You know, I can't say I was this little girl who was dreaming about her wedding and her knight in shining armor or anything like that. I wouldn't say that I'm interested in marriage or any, you know, anything like that really. So it's not a subject that resonates with me all that much personally, but this film just has its claws in me. It has its hooks in me and it will not let go. Because of the way Rosalini did the film, how it is plotless, how it's not anything that you expect from a film. There's no, there's not a lot of action. There's not a lot of, it's really about this couple who can't really talk to each other. They're, they've been married for a while and there's, sort of nothing there between them. They're realizing for the first time now that they're alone together, like really alone, just the two of them in this foreign country in Italy. They're realizing that there's nothing really bonding them together. They don't have children. And I'll talk more about that. What is there between them? And it's like these two people are, are realizing this for the first time that they've been together this all this time, but there's not really anything there. And they're trying to come to terms with that. And then K 
Catherine, Catherine Joyce, played by Ingrid Bergman, is just wandering around Italy going to different museums and looking at relics and looking at statues and sculptures from the past, sort of these ancient relics. And that's all that happens, really. It's it's kind of a difficult film to talk about. Maybe it is a bit similar to La Ventura in that way, or La Ventura is similar to it, right? Because it comes after. And La Ventura is sort of similar in the way that it's about a man and a woman who can't really communicate with each other and can't connect. Both the men in those films are quite cold, you know, if you think about the man in La Ventura and then um, Alex Joyce in Voyage to Italy or Journey to Italy, sorry. Sometimes it's called Voyage to Italy and sometimes it's called Journey to Italy. Um, but obviously I'm going to go with Journey to Italy. And Alex is very cold. And so both of these films have very cold males in them for sure. We also have like death and sort of yeah, death hovering over both films. Now with uh, Journey to Italy, it's this death of, of a man that Catherine once knew, Charles. Her memories of him and how her memories surface while she's in Italy. And then in La Ventura, it is the disappearance of Anna, the possible death of Anna, that sort of hovers over that film as well. So it's very interesting some of the similarities between the movies. I do have an episode about La Ventura because I absolutely love it. It is by far my favorite Antonioni film um, for sure. And I would say Journey to Italy is probably my favorite Rosalini film. Although Rome Open City is very powerful. But there is something about this film. It feels very modern. It feels very important when you watch it and you do realize that very similar to La Ventura which sort of created a new language for cinema so did Journey to Italy. So I think La Ventura probably takes what Journey to Italy did and just takes it even farther right? I'm not an expert. This is, these are just my thoughts about it. So this film has just been haunting me for years. And I think it's because of the way that it engages with the past and with those ancient relics and things like that. And I'll get into that when, when I'm talking more about the film. So our characters are Alex and Catherine Joyce, and they are on a vacation or a trip to Italy because Alex has inherited this house from an uncle, Uncle Homer. And so they go to Naples to sell the house. And that's what precipitates all of this is their journey to this foreign land, to Italy, that is so different from their own background, right? And they go into this country and into this area of Naples and they are sort of overwhelmed by the history of this place in particular Catherine is and her connections to it. It changes them and it affects them and it impacts them in very deep and profound ways. And George Sanders plays Alex, Ingrid Bergman plays Catherine. By this point, Ingrid Bergman's relationship with Roberto Rossellini was definitely disintegrating and it was not in good shape at all. They'd been together a few years, they had some children together, 
Their relationship was very scandalous at the time. It almost ruined her career for a while. I'm not going to go into the whole history of their relationship. You can find that online, of course. I just want to talk about this film. It's so interesting because I listened to a song around the time of watching this film, and I really felt like parts of the song were speaking to the film. And I know some of you are going to laugh at me and think I'm crazy, but it's a Katy Perry song. Some of you know I love pop music. I'm 30 years old, but I am a teen teenager inside forever in my room uh, with my hairbrush singing along to Britney Spears and all of the pop divas that I love and I just obsessively listen to pop music and adore it and I am a fan of Katy Perry have not loved her work lately um the last few years but she did come out with this interesting song recently called small talk and there's this great lyric in it it's it's a song about two people who used to be together but who aren't anymore and the chorus goes we went from strangers to lovers to strangers in a lifetime and I thought that was so fascinating I don't know if I love every part of the song but that chorus we went from strangers to lovers to strangers in a lifetime is fascinating to me and actually pretty deep (laughs) Um, because that happens in relationships it is wild to think about how you can be very intimate with someone and very close to someone and then all of a sudden that stops and it dissolves and it goes away when you break up or you divorce like you were strangers and then you loved each other and then you no longer love each other and you do become strangers to each other so I was just thinking about that lyric as I watched this film because this is a movie about a couple that is slipping away from each other And I do think that over the course of the film, death sort of awakens them, the presence and knowledge of death in the film that we see through the sculptures and the relics and the couple at Pompeii. And I will talk in depth about the Pompeii scene with the bodies that are found because that for me is the cornerstone of the film. And it is a part of the film that has haunted me for so long, ever since I saw it. And it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the history of cinema. That is like part of the mystery of this film is that scene to me. In this film they sort of do find their way back to each other but for a lot of the film they are strangers rather than lovers. Ingrid Bergman or Catherine Joyce at one point even says that they're like strangers. They're alone together for the first time since they've been married and it's like what is still between these people? What keeps two people together and what can tear them apart? It's interesting the way the film begins. It begins in a car and this car will recur throughout the film. It's an essential part of it is the two of them in the car together and then Catherine alone in the car. It's interesting that it begins with them in the car because they're very intimate in that space, right? They're side by side. They're right there with each other and yet there is no sense of intimacy between them even though they are so physically close. Very rarely do they touch each other in this film. In every way they are separate and over the course of the film they will become even more separate. He'll go off to Capri and leave her in Naples and they will be physically distant from each other and they are also emotionally distant from each other, right? And the beginning of the film is, it's really central in a lot of ways because it sets up a lot of the film where here they are in the car together, but you know, they're not talking a lot. They're not very close. You can already tell there is something, something between them that has ruptured or fissured in some way. 
we see images in the film through the car windows. So we see the road. We are seeing from their perspective, like as though they are in the car looking out the window. And that's something that recurs throughout the film, is taking on their viewpoint from the car and observing the life around them, observing the world around them, and observing this country that is completely foreign to them. They don't speak the language. They can't handle the food. Um, they complain about the food a bit, especially Alex. They see animals in the road. This is something that recurs that as Catherine is driving around by herself, she will see out of her window the life of Italy, the streets of Italy, women, children, strollers, all kinds of things, other cars. And it's like this world around her, but she's very separate from it at the same time. And I think that makes the film very modern too, is I'm not sure I can think of another film around that time that was using the camera in that way to literally put you in the perspective of the people in the film to just observe street life and observe the landscape without there being some kind of point to it or some kind of narrative or plot uh, point. It's just observational in that way of you're just observing the life. And to me, these images looked like they were really captured like like they were not um they weren't scripted or constructed so there's almost like a documentary element to the film it looks like rosalini or his cameraman just were in the car and captured these images right uh you know the the spontaneous vivid vibrant life of italy as it existed in the 1950s and she can see that outside the car window and so can Alex you know when he's with her I think that's a really fascinating part of the film is their observation of the the world around them the country and the culture around them they've been married for eight years but they really are like strangers to each other she realizes that she says it at one point, especially early in the film, and he replies to her that after eight years of marriage, it's almost like they hardly know anything about each other. And I can't imagine the loneliness that one must feel in a relationship like that, where you're with this person for eight years, you share everything about your lives together, and yet you feel completely alone. When that connection is severed and when it's gone, it must be very devastating. And I think you can tell throughout the film that Catherine is, is struggling with it. And they both acknowledge it. It's not like one of them is in denial, like, oh no, we have a great relationship. Both of them agree, we don't know each other. We are strangers to each other. They've gone from lovers to strangers, right? I think that's a powerful part of this film is like, well, what do they do now? They don't know what to do. And the film sort of captures that alienation and captures that sense of them feeling very lost in this land, feeling lost in Italy. It's not really a vacation at all. This is a trip in which... Their lives will change. Their relationship is coming apart at the seams. And I think Catherine is trying to salvage it and save it. And Alex, for a lot of the film, is not. He's incredibly cold, incredibly distant. But that's how men are often socialized, right? They're, they're socialized to hide their feelings, to not be vulnerable. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily taught 
how to create intimacy, how to understand a woman's perspective in the world. And he's, and throughout the film, he'll say disparaging things to her. Like after the Pompeii thing, where they see the couple, he'll say, get yourself together. You need to get yourself together. He can't stand emotion. He is very cut off from that part of himself. And she is like soaking in emotion. She is so emotional throughout the film. She's always on the verge of tears. I love actually that Rosalini actually told this film through the perspective of the woman. I actually don't cover a lot of films on this podcast that are told from male perspectives. I tend to just prefer uh, films about women, about their stories, their lives, their inner worlds. It's just kind of rare for me to focus on men. I'm not against it in any way. A lot of the directors I cover are men just because that's, that's film history, right? That's what we have. A lot of men have directed a lot of what's considered the classic films. But I do, I cover a lot of uh, female directors as well. I love that this, this film could have been told from Alex's perspective. And I feel like it's much more geared towards Catherine. Although we see, we see both perspectives. When he goes off to Capri, we do see him in Capri. But to me, Catherine is the, she's the driving force of the film. She has this energy about her, this emotion, this vulnerability. This is like a very wounded woman. And I'm always attracted to that. Like that resonates with me. A woman who's wounded, a woman who is like barely containing herself and her emotions. And why shouldn't she be upset? Her husband's being very cold to her. Throughout the film, she'll say things like, he's such a brute, or I hate him, I despise him, because she's hurt. She's hurt by the distance she can feel between the two of them. In one scene, she talks about how he always has criticism in his eyes when he looks at her. She's unraveling because her relationship with him is unraveling and maybe she's like questioning questioning the last eight years of like how what did I see in him why did I choose him why am I with him maybe some of those questions are coming out on this trip a very important scene in this film and, and a bit of information is the scene where Catherine and Alex are sitting outside in the sun And she starts to talk about a boy that she once knew named Charles Lewington. This is a central part of the film, and I want to talk about it in depth. He is this man from her past. He died two years ago. He was a poet, and he was stationed in Italy during the Second World War, right there in Naples. So she is in a landscape where this other man was also at one point and she knew Charles before she knew Alex and she tells Alex that on the eve of her wedding of their wedding Charles came to her window it was raining he was shivering and she recalls the scene as being one that was very romantic that he had quote braved the rain to see me unquote it's like Charles has this romantic nature to him that Alex completely lacks and he was a poet and Alex even mocks him for being a poet and I feel like as soon as she tells this story about Charles that now Charles is between them he's like this phantom that is thick in the air 
between these two people. And this scene is very reminiscent of a scene from one of my favorite short stories, if not my favorite short story. I don't know if it's my number one favorite short story. I, I have a few I'd put above it, like maybe something by Catherine Mansfield, who's one of my favorite writers. But The Dead is really, really high up. And that's the story. It's called The Dead by James Joyce. There's some people say it could be a novella, but I still call it a short story. From what I read, Journey to Italy is based on a a book or a story by Colette, but Rosalini was not able to get the rights to that story. So it's sort of loosely based on it. I don't know anything about that, you know, about what Colette wrote or how similar it is. But when I saw this scene, I immediately thought of James Joyce's story, The Dead. And it seems, it would seem to fit because their last names are Joyce in the film. And what happens in The Dead is that Greta Conroy is talking to her husband, Gabriel Conroy, and Gabriel is the main character of the dead. I'm not going to go into the full story, but you could probably find it online to read for free. It's well worth your time. John Huston has a really beautiful film adaptation of the short story, and it has a really beautiful final scene that I think, I think John Huston did a really good job, and it stars Angelica Huston as well, his daughter. So Greta Conroy is talking to her husband Gabriel about a boy that she knew from her youth. His name was Michael Fury. And he came to see her on a cold and rainy day. As a result, he becomes ill and he dies after coming to see her. I think she was leaving or something. And he came to see her. She was very in love with Michael Fury. A song that she heard at the party that her and Gabriel were at reminded her of this boy, of this of like probably her first love or one of her first loves. Really, how can anybody compete with that kind of roman romantic gesture, that kind of dedication that a boy died for you? <laughs> like he went out in the rain and became ill and died uh, because he just had to see you. So for Greta in that story, Michael Fury is a very powerful memory in her life. And when I read the story, it felt to me like like Michael was almost this ghost haunting them. Like once Gabriel knew about Michael Fury, that he felt like maybe he didn't fully know Greta the way that he thought he did. Like here was this story that his wife was telling him and he knew nothing about it. You could feel like this distance between them now of like, here is this boy that he didn't know about and that she maybe dreams about or thinks about and she has these memories of. And how can he compete with that? How can he compete with that sort of romantic fantasy? That was just my interpretation of it. And so when Catherine talks about Charles Lewington to Alex, I felt something similar happening. I mean, they're already distant from each other. They're already crumbling and, and disintegrating as a couple. But when she talks about Charles, it's just like immediately, like the wall grows larger between them because Italy for her becomes a place of memory, like a landscape of memory because she is thinking of Charles because that was where he was stationed during the Second World War. And when she goes to these museums, he wrote poems about certain relics or statues in these museums. 
And the reason that she's going to them is so that she can experience them, not just through his poems, but in real life. His poetry is almost like a guide for her, almost like an itinerary as she wanders around Italy and goes to these different places. She even quotes his poetry to Alex. His poetry is part of her. She said that she copied it out for herself. So it meant something to her. So she has this relationship with Charles that Alex didn't even know about. He's been with her eight years. They're lovers. They are partners. And yet here is this part of her that he knew nothing about. Because do we really ever know another person? I know that's a cliche thing to say, but maybe that's part of the mystery of this film is the mystery of people, the mysteries that we are to one another, and that maybe we can never truly fathom another person or or something like that. I just have always been moved by this scene where she's talking about Charles because it's so reminiscent of The Dead by James Joyce. I mean, that's my, that's what I think about. That's my reference point for it. And I think that she's thinking about Charles, not just because they're in Naples and he wrote about Naples, but that the the estrangement and the distance from Alex awakens the memories of Charles. Perhaps she's imagining what her life would have been like if she'd married him instead. Perhaps she regrets choosing Alex when another man showed much more passion and romance towards her. Alex is very cold, as I said before. She calls him a brute. She thinks he should be punished for his pride. There's a scene where she says he knows little about life. She's She speaks out loud to herself when she's alone and she like curses. <laughs> she curses Alex because she's so mad at him. She's mad at his coldness and the way that he treats her. One relationship is crumbling, the one with Alex, and so perhaps she starts to think about the possibilities of the one relationship that is lost, of what it could have been. But she'll never know because Charles is dead. And Charles's death, not just Charles's life, but his death, hangs over her. That I think she is haunted by him because he is dead. Because she'll never know what her life could have been like with him if she had chosen to be with him instead of Alex. So the death of Charles and the death just in Italy is all around her. Death sort of envelops her in this film. And maybe that's another part of the mystery of the film is is death and how omnipresent and real and tangible it feels in Italy and especially when she's in those museums and she's touching these relics from the past. She's connected to the past but in order to be connected to the past you have to acknowledge and recognize death. You have to understand that things things that are hundreds of years old were created by people who are dead and it it awakens your own sense of mortality I think. She goes to one museum that has art and sculpture that was found in Pompeii. And many of you probably know know about Pompeii. It was like the an ancient Roman city and it was near Naples, according to Wikipedia. It happened in AD 79 and it was buried after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and all kinds of volcanic ash and pumice came down and it buried Pompeii and 
lots of people died and and all of that. I mean, I'm not going to go into the in-depth history about it, but it is a really important part of the film is Pompeii, which I think reminds us of the fragility of life. Here were these people in Pompeii just going about their lives, and then the volcano erupts, people die. It's, it's so terrible. And volcanoes kind of recur throughout Rosalini's work because he has another film with Ingrid Bergman called Stromboli. She plays um, like a refugee or a displaced person who marries an Italian man and goes to live on this island that has a volcano, sort of. The people of this community live in the shadow of this volcano. volcano. And so it's a, it plays a big part in that film. And then, of course... Vesuvius and Pompeii are a big part of this film of the death of these people like thousands of years ago and yet here are here are certain relics that remain here are artifacts that we have from Pompeii and we have the shapes of their bodies we don't have their bodies we have the shapes of their bodies in this film so they're dead but they're present it's like the presence of absence like here is this community that was wiped off the earth but here are these artifacts that remind us of them she has to confront that Catherine has to confront history in that way and when she's in this museum with all the different sculptures the camera like floats across the the sculptures of various famous people there are like these busts of their faces there is a woman's body sculpted in stone you feel the immensity of history you're really confronting it. These artifacts are thousands of years old and you have to wonder if Catherine is like thinking of her mortality. Some of these statues tower over her. They are just massive and she looks so small in comparison when she's walking through this museum. Maybe she's thinking about how Charles saw these same figures and maybe wrote about them in his poetry. She even talks to Alex about the experience I think she's trying to share her inner life with him. She's trying to share her feelings. And so often, men don't let women do that. I'm just speaking from my own experiences of things that I've gone through, encounters I've had, the way that women's lives, the way women's thoughts and feelings are so marginalized and dismissed and silenced in this world. It's, it's a frustrating feeling to be a woman and to have your experiences devalued. And when you want to talk about your feelings or you want to talk about something you've experienced with a man, it can be difficult. It can be very difficult, in fact. I could relate to that about Catherine, where she's trying to share this with Alex and he's as cold as that stone is. He doesn't really care. You know, she talks to him about the sculptures and how these were men who lived thousands of years ago, but they're just like the men of today. I'm sort of paraphrasing her. You know, the stone, the stone is there. The stone remains, but the living, breathing bodies that they represent or that created them are gone. The art lives on, but the artist can't. You know, it's just the ultimate representation of our of our mortality and the fragility of our lives, the temporary nature of our lives. I mean, what are we up against that kind of history, <laughs> up against thousands of years? <laughs> like, what are we? Like, we're just this flicker. 
we're just this flickering thing that's gone so quickly. It scares me at times. You know, when I think about how quickly time is going, how my life is, it just seems so cliche to say my life is passing me by, but I don't know how else to articulate it. I feel like the the burden of time or I feel the the weight of time, the reduction of time, that there's not enough of it for everything that I want to pack into it. It's like, how do you pack everything into your life in this short amount of time that you have? And I think that that's something that the film speaks to, I think, is here is this couple and what are they next to these thousand year old artifacts? What are they? What is their little drama, their puny human drama that they can't love each other, they can't get along? I mean, our lives are so small in the end, and yet they're not small at all, at least not to us, not as we are living our lives, right? It's only against the backdrop of history that we realize how tiny we are. Or when you look up at the stars and you think about the cosmos and the universe and about billions of years, right? Or when you think about the dinosaurs, that's billions of years. How do you even, how can the mind even comprehend these things? And I think museums become a space where you can contemplate those questions questions of your existence, of your mortality, of time. It brings to mind a film that I've covered called called Museum Hours by Jim Cohen. And it's one of my favorite episodes that I've done. Like that was a similar film about, because it takes place in a museum. It's about museums and art and paintings. And you know, these paintings that were done hundreds of years ago and the artists are gone. And yet there you are standing and looking at this art the museum scenes in Journey to Italy gave me similar feelings. Museums are these really important spaces. Like it's important to preserve these things. It's important to have these public places, these public and and accessible places where people can see historic artifacts and can see the physical remains and traces of history and of people that lived hundreds of years ago, because I do think it gives you perspective. I do think it makes you uh, reflect on your own life, your own place in the world and in the universe and within history and time. You know, this is a little epoch that we're living through. And to us, it's very urgent and it's very important. But in the grand scheme of things, it's incredibly short and small. It's scary. It's scary to think about like, wow, this is just one time that I am on earth and there were billions of years before me and there will be billions of years after me. And what does it all mean? And I'm an atheist and I'm not religious and I don't have the comfort of religion. I do believe that when we're gone, we're gone. And that's not an easy thing to believe. It would be really, really comforting to think that all of this has a grand purpose and there's some bearded man in the sky that's going to make sense of all this. But I don't believe that. And in the absence of that, what do you do? I, I think all that maybe people like me can do is look at history, try to hold on to our sense of wonder and awe and not be completely terrified, but it is terrifying. But there's also something really grand and beautiful about it. You know, when you look at the stars, when you think about, wow, 
I'm here. You know, this is amazing that I'm here and I'm experiencing this thing, these things. And I get to watch Journey to Italy and I get to experience this great art because art always makes me feel my most alive next to obviously spending time with my mom or something because she's my everything and I'm you know my mom is my best friend and I love her deeply but when I am engaging with art that's when I feel like solace and comfort that's why this film speaks to me is the scenes at the museum is that's the mystery in the film the the mystery is death death is the mystery and its presence throughout the film the way that it permeates and haunts the film and haunts the characters, in particular Catherine for much of the film. But later on, at the end, I think that Alex comes into the presence of death and history by witnessing the couple at Pompeii. Italy, Italy is, you know, the thing about America is that we are like, we don't have a lot of stuff like that. We're not, you know, we're such a recent nation right? We don't have museums with like artifacts in them that are thousands of years old. I mean, there might be out there. I I haven't gone to a lot of museums, but in Italy or places in Europe, or if you think of like Stonehenge, there, it seems like places throughout Europe and other countries, they, they have more of a connection to like the ancient past or ancient history, but especially Italy. It hovers over the film. It haunts the film. Catherine is feeling all of these things she tries to tell him i don't think he really cares much of the film is through her eyes and she is this wife desperately trying to reach her husband i think to connect with him but he won't let her in and maybe she doesn't know how to connect either i mean to me this this is a big film about the inability to connect with another person you're right there you're right in the room together you're in the car together And yet you might as well just be strangers because there's nothing there. And she doesn't know how to, she's hurt and doesn't know how to, to come out of that. And, you know, to, to reach him, he has his own hurt for some reason. We don't know why we don't totally know why the relationship is crumbling. It seems, I mean, as soon as we see them in the car, there just seems to be something there between them of something is not right between these two people but you can't put your finger on it and you don't know exactly why they're not getting along, but they're just not. (laughs) Gradually throughout the film, it builds and it comes to a head at certain times. Like when they get in a big fight at their hotel room, and he, he thinks it's best that they should stay away from each other or be away from each other. And he says he's going to go to Capri. And so he jets off to Capri and leaves her alone And so much of the film is about her driving around alone and going to museums and looking at artifacts by herself. So she's confronting these really enormous things, these sculptures, these sulfur springs, these uh, different artifacts. I I bet she can't even put it into language what she's feeling. That's the brilliance of Ingrid Bergman is that it's all in her face and her eyes And you can tell that this woman is, something's being awakened in her. Something is being stirred in her by her confrontations with history and with death in these spaces like the catacombs. And I'll talk about the catacombs in a little bit because that's such a powerful scene. 
things are being stirred in her and she doesn't know she doesn't know how to describe it I bet she can't even put a name to it to what she feels inside that's the thing about this film there it suggests a vast interior turmoil in Catherine to me I feel like this woman is coming apart in some ways because she's losing so much she's losing Alex and then I think she's also not able to understand all of the emotions like why she's so emotional because she's thinking of Charles and Charles recently died so her grief is coming up too right maybe maybe when he died two years ago she didn't really grieve for him maybe she couldn't but now that she is in a landscape that he once traveled seeing artifacts and statues and sculptures and forms of art and different sites that he wrote about in his poetry it's like she's reconnecting with him it's interesting like she is disconnected from alex but it's like she's reconnecting with charles with the dead she's connecting with the dead and disconnected with the living if that makes any sense like here is her husband Alex he is living he is a real live man and she can't connect with him at all but when she thinks about Charles who's dead that's who she connects to she connects to his poetry she even recites it throughout the film several times it's like these verses are part of her they're like in her head and that's maybe who she feels more connected to instead of her actual husband and it's because there's something electric about Naples or the area around Naples there is something electric in this landscape for her that when she enters it it charges her body it electrifies her body it feels that way to me that like she is charged with something when she is in this place and when she goes to these museums her inner emotions are so present on Ingrid Bergman's face in the in her eyes in the way that she looks at things in the moments when she's overcome with emotion and and begins to cry she doesn't she doesn't know how to handle everything that it's stirring inside of her because she really is a woman alone this is a woman who is alone driving alone going to museums alone even though she's married she might as well be alone because Alex is absent he is not present with her he doesn't go to any of the museums with her until Pompeii at the end he is just so separate from her they're separate from each other and we see that in the sequence where he's in Capri right and we see how different their lives are I mean here she is going to museums driving looking at the city life the streets she comes across a lot of every drive is different for her it's like on every drive to a different museum or a different site she sees something different like one time she sees just women I think she or no one of one time she sees couples I think it's right after they have a fight and she's driving somewhere and everywhere she looks there's couples all around her and then another time she's driving and she sees like pregnant women she sees a lot of pregnant women women with children and she doesn't have children with Alex and we don't know if that was like a choice or they were just unable to conceive 
but it seems to be something unspoken between them. Maybe they did want a child. Maybe they would feel more connected to each other if they had that. They don't, they just don't have that in the film for a lot of the film. And her drives are just so interesting because it seems like she often in the drives confronts things like seeing couples in love, couples kissing, couples in each other's arms. And then her and Alex are so distant from each other. It's a reminder of what she lacks. It's a reminder of what she doesn't have. And it's the same thing seeing the pregnant women or the children. It's a reminder of what she doesn't have in her life. And often in the car, she's talking about Alex, (laughs) you know, how she doesn't like him, how he's a fool. And she says, I think at one point, all men are like him. (laughs) Like she thinks men are bad, you know, because of her experience with Alex and she hates him and he's silly and he's cruel and all of these things. Like she feels unloved by him. She feels disposed, you know, she feels like probably she was just thrown away by him that he doesn't care about her he doesn't want to save the marriage at all he's not even trying so I think she has every right to feel the way she does she she feels locked out of his life that he's keeping her out no matter what she does even when she tries to connect or share things with him or talk to him or anything like that he's very curt and very short with her oh god men like that I just I've encountered men like that even in my family and it's just you feel like you're on eggshells around them right like men who will not speak to you or acknowledge you or and you just feel like every time they look at you they are looking down on you like you're beneath them or something like that And I have encountered that myself and it's a terrible feeling. And to have that from your own husband, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to Catherine in this film, obviously. He he is cold to her and cruel at times and she's very wounded by it, very wounded. And that comes out like, you know, we as women, it's, it's hard for us to express our rage often. It's not permissible. It's not um, polite to be angry or to lash out or to say what we are really feeling. It can be very difficult for women to do that. And so the car and by herself gives her this space to vent. She doesn't have any friends with her or anything. So when she's speaking out loud and calling him silly and cruel and she hates him and all of this stuff, it's like she's venting. She's able to say the way that she truly feels about him and within a safe space of the car, nobody's going to hear her. Nobody's going to know, but she can say it and get it out. But she can't say it to his face, although at times she does. At times, one time I think she tells him, you know, you don't realize how cruel you can be towards me. So there are times when she stands up to him and, you know, lets him know, like, you're not treating me right. And she notices when he flirts with women and there's a scene where they're out with friends and he's over there flirting with a girl and she notices And she is jealous and it does upset her. She does tell him at times. But the car tends to be the place where she can uh, vent some of her anger and her rage about the way that he's treating her. And their time away from each other, she's going to museums and learning about history. As is typical, he's basically partying, hanging out with like 
embarrassingly younger people (laughs) he does not fit (laughs) with this group of people who are like extremely young like in their 20s and at one point when he returns to Naples he sort of picks another woman up but nothing happens with her but several times throughout the film he's sort of on the edge of being unfaithful right and but death follows him too he can't get away from it because when he picks that woman up they sit in their car together sit in his car and she's talking about one of how one of her friends recently died and that kills the mood you know nothing's going to happen but death sort of impinges on his life too he can't get away from it either and the whole reason that they're even in naples is the death of his uncle right he inherited this house so death is woven throughout the film for sure And there's this really important scene I want to talk about where Catherine goes to these catacombs or the cemetery where death is everywhere. There's skulls and bones and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's harrowing. It's it's a harrowing part of the film. Probably the darkest and most frightening because there is that primal terror of actually confronting human bones and death and how terrifying that is just this long line of skulls and you can tell that Catherine is very scared and she's unsettled by it in everyday life you just don't encounter things like that so this is very unsettling to her and I love what Martin Scorsese says about this scene he has this wonderful documentary I think it's like four hours long I got to watch it recently like a month or two ago because I knew that I wanted to talk about Italian cinema I knew that I wanted to cover it on the podcast Um, I also talked about a film called Umberto D by Vittorio De Sica I have an episode about it and it's before this one so for a while I knew I was going to cover some Italian films and I will cover more Italian films I promise you Uh, I would love to cover more De Sica I would love to cover some Fellini in particular Knights of Cabiria because I like Fellini I'm not quite as into his most famous films like Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita. I prefer like La Strada and Knights of Cabiria is probably my favorite, but I still have some Fellini to watch. So I would definitely love to cover him. There's there's more Italian films that I want to talk about, but when I was thinking about what I wanted to do and the films I wanted to cover, I knew that Scorsese had done this documentary and so I ordered the DVD. I got a used one on eBay because I really wanted to see it. And I love Scorsese. He is a passionate cinephile and he's an advocate for cinema and he's preserved a lot of world cinema. And I just love hearing him talk about film. (laughs) He's been in a lot of documentaries about film. But this one, My Voyage to Italy, is from 1999 and it's very personal. And he talks about really the films of his youth, the films of his boyhood, the films that he saw when he was growing up and and watched on television with his family. Much of his family were Italian immigrants, you know, his grandparents. So Italian films are very personal for Scorsese. And he talks about Rosalini. He talks about Visconti, De Sica, Fellini. He talks about all the greats. And it's a wonderful documentary if you get a chance to see it. And he talks about Journey to Italy. And I love what he says about the catacombs scene. He says, quote, She's moved by all these lives that have come and gone before hers. It's no longer simply a matter of history or relics, 
but of real people who enjoyed life and who suffered just as she suffers, just as everyone does, unquote. That's the thing about the catacomb scene is that, and, and throughout the museum experiences that she has, is that these people were once just as alive as she is, and she will one day be dead the way that they are, the way that Ingrid Bergman is, right? We have this film, George Sanders is dead too, Rosalini's dead. We have this art that they created, but they themselves are gone, but they are part of history. They are part of the relics and the artifacts that get handed down it's kind of what film is this is what this is what is left behind this is the art that remains after the artist has passed on we have these films and i'm grateful to have them because as many of you know films are fragile we have lost so many silent films to fires to not being preserved correctly. We can lose these films too. They need to be preserved and that's really important. And the only reason that we have the artifacts from Pompeii and all that is because somebody preserved them in a museum that Catherine gets to go and see (laughs) and that she gets to experience. And I think maybe that is what's happening inside her, of her realizing how short life is, how ephemeral it is, how fragile it is, like, what do you do with that knowledge? What what do you really do with it? How does it change you? How does it transform you? And I do feel like these two people are transformed by the end of the film. And maybe you find that believable or maybe you don't. It is sudden. It is, it is unexpected. It does, um, maybe it is too unbelievable. But it's a film and they can do whatever they want in it. <laughs> Rosalini can have whatever ending he wants to have. And um, I'll talk about the ending in a moment. So she's she's confronting all of that. And it's all over Ingrid Bergman's face. That's, that's the gift of her. I love Ingrid Bergman. She's absolutely one of my favorite old Hollywood actresses. Love the work she did with Rosalini. Love the work she did in Hollywood. All of it. She was a very brilliant woman and... I definitely recommend a a recent documentary called Ingrid Bergman in her own words. It's a great documentary, has interviews with Isabella Rosalini and her other children, and it uses um, home movies that Ingrid Bergman herself took and uses excerpts from her diaries and journals that are read by Alicia Vikander. So it's, it's a really good film. And I watched it several years ago and it'll just make you fall even more in love with Ingrid Bergman because she was an extraordinary woman. She was a complicated and complex woman. She had a complicated relationship with her children. Another Ingrid Bergman film that I've covered on the podcast is Autumn Sonata where she worked with Ingmar Bergman. It's one of my favorite Ingmar Bergman films. She stars in it with Liv Ullman, another lady that I love. <laughs> Ingrid just gives an amazing performance in this film. In My Voyage to Italy, Scorsese also quotes Rosalini about Journey to Italy. Rosalini said, quote, Death doesn't exist here because it's a living thing in Italy. It's a different kind of civilization. There's a different meaning to things here, unquote. So he's talking about Italy. I've never been to Italy but I dream of Italy. I have to be honest with you. 
I love films about Italy. I've covered several films that take place in Italy, uh, whether it is um, Call Me By Your Name or Summertime by David Lane, and it stars Katherine Hepburn. It's such a beautiful film. Unrelated by Joanna Hogg about a woman going on vacation in Tuscany, I think. You know, I've covered other Italian cinema like Umberto D and La Ventura and a special day. So I've, I've covered some Italian films and Italy is a place that fascinates me. I would love to visit it one day. I've always wanted to go to Europe and I would want to go to all the museums. I would want to experience all the history because ever since I was a child, I have just loved history. And I used to be fascinated with archaeology when I was younger. I used to love watching like the Discovery Channel and the National Geographic Channel and I used to read Smithsonian Magazine (laughs) where they would talk sometimes about archaeology and also other things about history and ancient history and I used to watch documentaries about Pompeii and the the Romans and all kinds of stuff like that. It really deeply fascinated me and so history has always been something that interested me. I don't you know I I don't know enough about all of the different history out there but it just I've always been someone who craved knowledge and so Italy always felt to me or I guess Europe in general always felt to me like a place of ruins, a place of relics and artifacts and museums and a place where history, especially ancient history from thousands of years ago, was always very recent, always very present in those cultures. Or I would love to go to England, I'd love to go to Britain, go to different places there like Stonehenge and all kinds of places like that. Um, you know, throughout the UK, that would be a big dream of mine. I'd love to go to Ireland, Scotland, everywhere. Cornwall, oh my god, a dream of Cornwall. <laughs> I would I would love to. I mean, you know, in my mind, I have this dream life. <laughs> I mean, if you're a new listener, you might not know about my struggles, but I do have agoraphobia. I do struggle a lot with anxiety, things like that. So, I'm pretty isolated and I have not traveled much at all. I have not been out of the United States, <laughs> not because I don't want to, but I have health issues. I have physical health issues that pretty much make it difficult and don't have the funds for it, the money for it, plus my own anxiety and just my difficulties. But in my mind, I dream of these places and Italy is a big place that I dream of. <laughs> I gotta be honest here. So after the catacombs, I know I've diverged a lot. Uh, I've gone on a tangent. I'm a dreamer. I will always be a dreamer. (laughs) It's like I really can't deal with reality. I can't deal with real life because I'm so much in my own head and in my own world that I can't really accept reality. But my imagination and my dreams are like a source of comfort and solace. It's like a place where I can go and, and hide, I guess, when life gets too hard or too painful because I've just been through so much in my life, a lot of loss and grief and pain. And so my dreams kind of keep me going sometimes to just dream about places, dream about things out there, right? Like I know people, people living in Italy or people living in Ireland or England or any of these places, like to me, these places are like a fantasy. They're a dream. Or France. I'd love to go to Paris, of course. Y'all know I love French cinema. 
you know, but to the people living in those places, it's just an ordinary everyday place. There's nothing special about it. (laughs) You know, I get that. But to me, it just, there's a romance about like Italy and places like that. Let me have my dream. Okay. (laughs) Don't take my dreams away. So after the catacombs, Alex and Catherine get in this argument. He's mad that she took the car to go to the catacombs. And in the course of their argument, he mentions Charles. So it's very clear at this point why he has not liked her trips to the museums. Because he senses that it's her searching for Charles in a way. That she's trying to connect with Charles through the places that he wrote about in his poetry. So I think there's a a jealousy there. I think he can tell that she's haunted by him. And it's this thing that exists between the two of them that separates them. And it's in this argument that they finally mention divorce. He's the one that says it. He finally says the word divorce. And it's this thing that has been hovering over them during the entire vacation. That these two people cannot go back to their everyday lives after this trip, after this journey. It's a journey to Italy. It's a journey to a foreign land. But it's also like a journey... It's a journey that they're taking too in their relationship and they're not going to be the same afterwards. They cannot go back to their lives as they were before this trip at all. They just can't. Now, as they're arguing, a friend shows up and he wants to take them to Pompeii. This is sort of what the film is building to, I think. When they find these hollow places at Pompeii, they inject it with plaster and that's how they get like the casts of the bodies And it makes a mold of the human bodies that were once there. The bodies that were, quote, surprised by death, unquote, this friend says. So a plaster cast is uh, is formed out of, of that. So they go to the site of Pompeii where these people are doing this, where they're putting the plaster into into holes and into these hollow areas. And they see them, you know, dusting away the dirt and all of that so that they can see the the plaster cast that is created. What they see are two people, the forms of two people, most likely a man and a woman, like a husband and a wife possibly, who died together, who were like holding each other or were together when they died. This is part of the mystery of the film for me is this scene where history and the present sort of collide with each other and you feel the presence of something very unspeakable, something very enormous which is death, yes, but is also like your connection to the past. Like here you are, you are this living, breathing person and you're looking at people who have died. You're looking at a plaster cast of their bodies. Their bodies are gone, but they left these shapes in the earth. Like, I don't even know how to put it into words. I remember, I still to this day remember an issue of Smithsonian Magazine that I read. And I was probably a teenager. Maybe not a teenager, maybe 20-something. I I can't, it, it has to have been a while. And it was about these bog bodies that were found. There are these bodies that are found in peat bogs. And some of them are like from thousands of years ago. And some of these people died very violent deaths. I will link the Smithsonian article about it in the show notes of this episode because there's a really long article about these bog bodies, but they are incredibly haunting. I'll never get over it, honestly. They are mummified, so it is their their 
their skin or what looks like skin is still there. Their bones, their bodies, their faces are still intact, but they are completely mummified. And they've just been found in different places like in Europe and all over the world really. And if you haven't heard of bog bodies before, the bog people, definitely look into it because the images and the photos of them are just incredibly haunting. I, I don't even know how to speak about it or talk about it. But when I saw the this scene in the film with the Pompeii people and their bodies, it reminded me of the, of the ones in the bogs. It's just, I can't even talk about it, how much it haunts me. It's so creepy to see these people who have been dead for like thousands of years and to see them still in human form. Like, it's just unspeakable. After they see these bodies, it's a jarring moment where they see them. And I do think it's a kind of awakening for both of them. She's very overwhelmed with emotion. And Alex himself even says that it was very moving. So this is like the first time in the film where we get some kind of emotion from Alex. We get like something out of this person of what he might be feeling or what his inner life or inner world might be because it's withheld for a lot of the film and it's it's not accessible to us as viewers the way we might feel more connected to Catherine and at one point she says life is so short and he says that's why one should make the most of it so they're both feeling a bit overwhelmed by it but he tells her that she needs to get herself together he, she needs to get her emotions in check and so it's it's another example of him sort of belittling her, invalidating her feelings, not allowing her to feel what she feels and to have the emotions that she has. And that's like the, I hate that feeling. I hate when people place your emotions or tell you not to cry or something like that. Like, don't tell me how to feel. Don't tell me how to react to something if I'm emotional about it. Like, don't shame somebody for being emotional because that scene to me is like, it's such a powerful thing. And I know powerful, I say that word a lot because sometimes I don't know what else to say. It's one of my favorite scenes in the history of cinema, to be honest, because of the mystery at play there of just the whole setup of the scene of like, here's this couple whose relationship is disintegrating. And then they come across these bodies at Pompeii this man and this woman who were most likely holding each other when they died in this volcano, in this volcanic ash, and how moving that is, and how it speaks to the importance of human connection and love and having somebody with you when you are going through something like that, through death, like they're clinging to each other. It almost feels wrong to see that, to witness that. And here is this living, breathing couple, these two people who are looking at this other couple that's dead and gone and has been gone for thousands of years. It probably makes them think about their own lives and how they don't want to die alone. That if they were dying in a volcano or if something terrible was happening and they would want to have somebody there to be with in their last moments, because that's what that Pompeii couple did. Like they had each other in their final moments. They loved each other. What do Catherine and Alex have? Do they still love each other? If they were dying, would they want to cling to each other and hold each other? And maybe they still feel those emotions for one another. 
and and seeing that couple maybe it wakes them up for a second to say why why am i being cruel to this person when we have one of the greatest things on earth and that is love like this that is the reason for our lives is love isn't it i mean what else is there i mean for me it would be love and art personally like i you have to have love but i also have to have art you know i have to have books and films and paintings and all of that because it inspires me but love is the meaning of our lives love is the reason we're here that's what all of us want that's what all of us ache for and here Catherine and Alex have it. They are together. They do apparently love each other or they did at one time. And love itself is a mystery. The way that it is there one minute and how it can sort of disappear the next. Back to that Katy Perry lyric. We went from strangers to lovers to strangers in a lifetime. Of how can you go from not knowing someone to intimately knowing and loving them and then act like you never knew them it's it doesn't seem natural to me you know it's just and so I think in that moment too that Catherine and Alex have to decide is this worth saving is this worth worth salvaging because this is life and death this is life and death in that moment they are reminded of their own deaths of what will happen to them do they love each other or do they not is this worth saving? Is it worth continuing? Is there something there that can go on? Can they go on together? You know, that seems to be in the air for me personally when I'm watching this scene about this couple of like, can this couple stay together? Can this couple find each other again? Right? Like, that's what it makes me feel. Because when you see that couple in the ground, the Pompeii couple, you're, I think you're just overwhelmed by the beauty of it. Of like, in their last moments, these people clung to each other and held each other. And what that says about the importance of, e the importance of other people in our lives and the meaning of love. You know, when you think about losing a loved one and or when you think about your own death, you know, you don't want to be alone. You want to have loved and you want to have been loved in return. That is what you want. And that is what that couple sort of signifies and symbolizes with their bodies in the earth holding each other is that human need to be loved and held and cared for. That's to me what it speaks to. And Catherine and Alex see that. And I do think that it wakes them up to their own mortality and also to what they have worth keeping and worth saving which is their relationship and their love for each other but they start bickering again even though they've seen this they do start arguing and they get in the car and it's not pretty you know they're they're right back to where they were before they went to Pompeii so they're driving back to the hotel and this is the final scene they get caught in that crowd there's some kind of religious procession it seems like and they're talk and they get caught in it. The car they can't really go any further because all of these people are out in the street. And Alex is talking about divorce. And Catherine mentions how they never had a child together, and maybe that's a problem that they never did have a kid. But Alex says that he's glad they didn't have a kid because he wouldn't want it involved in this. And that's a really cruel thing to say. She says that she despises him. He says that she never tried to understand him. I mean, this is like 
this is so um, typical, I think, of a lot of relationships at times. Not being able to understand each other, not being able to communicate with each other. It's all there in this one scene, in this one couple. They get out of the car. She gets swept up by the crowd suddenly. If you think about it, this is like a moment of possible danger for her. She could get crushed. She could get stampeded. She could fall and suffocate. I mean, this is a scary moment for her where she could die possibly or she could get seriously injured. And it is a moment of like fear. She's reaching out and she's calling his name. That to me indicates that she still loves him. That in her moment of like fear and her moment of um, terror and something scary happened, that's who she reaches for is Alex. That's who she wants to save her and comfort her. Just the way that the couple at Pompeii comforted each other in their final moments. So he goes after her. So they do still care for each other. That's the thing is that this very scary, sudden, unexpected moment coupled with seeing the Pompeii couple, it just, it brings something to the surface. There's like this eruption or this explosion inside them, I think, of of affection, of remembering why they love each other, why they're married, why they care about each other. Is that sometimes in those moments of extremity, you know, those moments of extreme um, experience (laughs) that we don't always go through in everyday life, you're not always swept up in a crowd (laughs) and almost trampled to death. That doesn't happen on a daily basis. They're very much outside of their ordinary lives and they have to decide what to do. Like that instinct kicks in that he wants to protect her. He wants to save her. And he gets swept up too as he's trying to get to her. And they eventually find each other again and they reunite. And it's like something has changed suddenly. Like a switch has has gone off or on, I guess you could say. That confronting their mortality through the couple at Pompeii and then confronting this very real moment of fear that something could happen to this other person because sometimes I don't think you realize how much you love somebody until they are endangered or they are threatened you know like you're going on about your life and you love people and of course but I don't I don't think you sometimes know the depth of it until you're faced with possibly losing them and I know it's cliche to say that the Joni Mitchell song right you don't know what you've got till it's gone But it's kind of true that when the thing that you love is endangered and when it could be lost, that is the moment at which you realize how much you loved that person. And I've gone through that. When I lost my father as a teenager, when I was 16, he died. And I loved him. I knew that I loved him. But I didn't know the depth of that love until he was gone. Until I no longer had him anymore. And sometimes, unfortunately, it takes that. It takes almost losing somebody or actually losing them for you to understand how much they meant to you. And of course, I would urge you to not let it get to that point. Always tell the people that you love that you love them. Don't let a day pass. Don't let a phone call end without saying I love you because you just never know. It's cliche to say that too, but you don't. And life is so fast. It goes by and it's so fragile. You can't even comprehend how fragile it is until everything just falls apart in your own life or when things are taken from you and people are taken from you. 
And that's what I kind of see with Catherine and Alex is that, so to me, the ending is believable. And to me, it kind of makes sense because they've had that moment. They've had that realization of, oh my God, this person that I love and care about, I could lose them. Something could happen to them. And that's when they realize how much they mean to each other. It's like maybe the, the possibility of physically losing each other is what makes them see how much they have to lose and how much they do love each other. You know, maybe they see themselves in that couple who died in Pompeii. I think they probably did. So the sudden turn of events, the way that they re reunite and they say that they love each other and they reconcile very quickly and then they hug each other and things like that. It's very, it's not necessarily what I expected the first time that I watched it, but it's, it still makes sense to me, even though it's unexpected. It's sort of a moment when all these unspoken things finally come out. You know, they've tried so hard the entire time to protect themselves to remain silent about their feelings. They've been passive aggressive at times. They've kept it all inside with Catherine saying things in the car, you know, and uh, they've tried to sort of wound each other and make each other jealous at times. They haven't communicated well at all. So now in this moment, this ending, it kind of spills out. Alex, um, you know, they're holding each other. This is the first time they've had some physical contact and shown some kind of embrace or intimacy and Alex asks like what's wrong with them and why they torture each other and she admits that when he says hurtful things that she lashes out and that she wants to hurt him back hurt him in return she says that she loves him he says maybe they get hurt too easily and that kind of seems to be the crux of it to me that these are two people who do hurt e easily that while he seems cold and he seems unfeeling that maybe, maybe he feels too much sometimes. Maybe he is sensitive. Maybe he does get hurt very easily. And they're both unable to talk about why they're hurt for fear of more hurt. <laughs> so they put up a wall. Like maybe they think the other person won't care. I mean, all of us do this. We keep things in. We, we don't want to talk about things. But they're finally touching each other, holding each other, smiling. It's really beautiful to see this couple who threw out so much the so much of the film are like strangers, to see them in each other's arms again, to see the warmth, the love, the connection between them again. Like that's a really beautiful thing. The the wall has sort of crumbled in this scene and I know that's cliche to say but they've broken through it it seems like they're finally in each other's arms face to face and he and he says that he loves her back so they've really found each other again you know they were petty and selfish and human like all of us they felt hurt they felt wounded they lashed out but that's like really understandable so many of us are like that but in the end, they forgive each other and they affirm the love that they have for each other. And it ends with that. It ends with them embracing and holding each other. To me, it's a beautiful ending, even though it's very unbelievable in a way, because so much of this film, they've hated each other and they've despised each other. But we haven't seen their relationship the eight previous years that they've been together. So there is a foundation there. There's a scaffolding for them to build on. There is something there. They just lost it for a little while or they lost sight of it. And going to Italy changes that. Like you think that this journey is going to destroy them. 
you think that this trip to Italy is going to absolutely end this couple, that they're going to get divorced, that they're going to fall apart, and there's nothing to be salvaged. But instead, what happens is that the trip transforms them, that they see each other with, with new eyes in a way, that they reconnect, that they start communicating again, and that they affirm the love that they have for each other, and they realize how much they mean to each other. So that's, to me, the beauty of, of the film, is that it does it does sort of end on a hopeful note, even though it is a film about death, and about disconnection, and loneliness, and a couple that is hurting each other, a couple that's very distant and separated from each other, but it's about finding their way back to each other, as cliche as that sounds. I think I've said that in another episode, probably. <laughs> I, I love that. I like the ending. I love this film. It still has so much mystery to it. Like, I don't think I'll ever be able to put it all into words or anything like that. It's good to know that this was also like a film that changed uh, film itself. That it was very inspirational to the French New Wave, to Godard and Romare and Truffaut and all of them. That it ushered in like a whole different way of making films. That's what Scorsese said in My Voyage to Italy. It just had such a profound impact on those directors and on films that would come later, like by Antonioni with La Ventura, films that were more experimental, where maybe maybe everything doesn't have to make sense. Maybe everything doesn't have to be spelled out, that there can be mystery, that there can be um, things that you don't totally understand. And I think that's what Journey to Italy does so well, is it really just challenges you. It's a different kind of film. It's I would compare it to what I said about La Ventura in my episode. I called La Ventura like a mood, like an atmosphere more than a film. And I get that with Journey to Italy too, of it's like this atmosphere, this mood, and you enter into it every time that you watch the film and you enter into mystery and you accept that you maybe can't understand everything about it or about how it emotionally affects you but that is the beauty of cinema and you have to open yourself up to that and so I have talked enough about this film I want to thank you so much for listening I hope you liked the episode and everything that I had to say thank you for listening this far I really appreciate it so I will stop here Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.